My name is Pastor Tim, and it's great to have the opportunity to open up God's Word. And uh, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we're doing so under the heading of this elementary and found uh, foundational and fundamental question that people have been asking for millennia, centuries, and that is, who am I? Who am I? And in this postmodern, post-truth culture, this question has never been more important than it is today. Where do I find my identity? What are the things that define who I am? And in a world and in a culture today that defines themselves by the status of where they find themselves in their lives, by the stuff that they have, by the color of their skin, by their sexuality, or the struggles they face, we recognize and know now more than ever that we need to know how God, our Creator, identifies who we are. And a cursory look at the Scriptures will tell us that the Bible defines and identifies us in one of two ways. We are either in Adam, that is, we are still in sin, in rebellion towards God and His revealed commands of how we ought to live and find our being, or we are in Christ, having bowed the knee in submission to Christ and His Lordship and His forgiveness of sins, and now living in accordance to His words. We are one or the other. The book of Ephesians is written to a group of believers who are in Christ. 25 different times, Paul writes that they are in Christ or in Him. And so this letter is written to a group of believers who have been saved by the grace of God, who find themselves uh, living in a world that is inundated with finding its identity. And it's hard at times for those who are in Christ to uh, remain in that posture of living in Christ when all the world is living for itself and it's living uh, for its sin. And so we have to learn from this letter what it means to live holy and blameless lives to the praise of God's glorious grace amidst uh, the way that the world seeks to live. And so Paul is going to continue to remind us who we are in Christ and how we ought to live in light of that position. Now, if you were to have Ephesians be a song, chapter 1 would be a song filled with uplifting and positive melodies. Uh, The music would be filled with flutes and clarinets and maybe an alto saxophone and strings of violins and harps. It it would be positive and and encouraging. Why? Because Paul in chapter 1 has gushed about the magnificence of God's grace and His mercy and His love. But as we turn the page to chapter 2, especially these opening verses, we get the low brass, the Uh, the trombones and the tubas. We get the low percussion, the bass drum, the timpani. Uh, For those Star Wars fans, we get the notions of the Imperial Death March starting to resound in our ears. Because what happens is, is we turn our attention from Christ, from what God is and what God has done in our lives And the focus turns on to us and our sin. Now, Paul has spoken just a little bit about this. He has alluded to our trespasses in chapter 1. 
But just as a little taster, if you will, but now he's going to dig deep into it and he's going to remind us of what we were before we were in Christ. Now there's a reason why he wants to do that and that is because I think it is altogether... Um, possible that those who are in Christ, especially for us who have been in Christ for a long time, we forget what we were before we were in Christ. And the more we forget what we were before we were in Christ causes us to have a haughty posture, an arrogant posture to those who aren't in Christ. We look to those who are still in their sin and we say, how could you? We look to those who are still in their sin and say, how dirty. We look to those in their sin and say, how rebellious. And we forget that it were, if it weren't for the grace of Almighty God, that we would still be there. And so Paul says, yes, you are in Christ, but I want to remind you of what you were before you were in Christ so that you will recognize the absolute immeasurable grace that you and I have been shown in Christ. So what were we before we were in Christ? You and I were sinners dead in our trespasses and sin. Let that sit for a moment. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sin. Now, a couple truths that I want us to sit with for a moment, and that is, first of all, that's what we were. In in verse 1 of chapter 2, you will see that past tense word. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. We're no longer that. We're in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, the Apostle Paul says later in another letter to a church that he was writing to. We're no longer there. That's what we were. And so if anybody ever says, well, you still have got sin to deal with, the answer is no. From a a status of justification, Jesus has taken care of that. Number two, we need to recognize that that is where the world is at now. There's no were. The world as it is right now, if they are not in Christ, they are dead in their trespasses and sin. And that's a sobering place. We need to recognize that our lost friends and family members, our neighbors and and those that are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, those who find themselves still in Adam, are still under the wrath of God. And that should sober us. And that should cause us to become passionate about our walk with Jesus Christ. Yes, but uh, the, the pursuit of evangelism. And maybe there are those in this room today that maybe have been in church for a while and never bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And, and I compel upon you this morning, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And you're going to see at the end of this passage, as a result of it, you by nature are children of wrath. God's wrath is upon you. And maybe you, you have been told God is love, and yes, He is love, but, but in the same measure of God's love is His righteousness and justice, and His wrath is coming upon sin. And so we need to recognize that. Number three, before we get into this text, I, I want to remind you, because geography and architecture will cause you to hear a very sobering message this morning, and it's sobering. And you'll say... I'm, you're going to hear a lot of in you, and I'll try to make sure it's it's us and we. 
But you'll, you'll have, because of the architecture, I'm up here and you're down there, that you'll say, well, who does he think he is? Well, I'm one of you. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I'm not associating myself with you. So don't get this idea that the architecture means that I'm somewhere outside of you. I am dead, and I was dead in my trespasses and sin, but God has made me alive in Christ. I'm in Christ just as you are. So so I, I want to make sure that you recognize that you don't leave and go, man, that guy, who does he think he is? I'm a sinner who is in need of God's grace, and I, like you, was once lost but has been found. And so all I am is the mouthpiece, and I want to make sure that everybody's aware of that because this is a sobering passage for me as much as it is for anyone else. So here's what, with that all in mind, here's what God has to say with to us all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's speaking of the devil there. Among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's where we're going to finish. We're going to stop there now. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Now, let me say before I pray... I want you to notice verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We're going to get there next week. So I want you to mark in your calendar, be at church next week. Okay? Because if you're not at church next week, you're going to judge prematurely the church. You're going to prejudge me. And you're going to say, see, the church is filled with hate. The church is filled with all kinds of intolerance. The church is all about bad news. The church is all about judgment. And today, yes, the church is all about judgment because that's what the Scripture lays forth. But that's not the whole story. But we're going to sit in this for a moment. And yes, at the end of the message, I will give some glimpses some some picture of the good news. But it is altogether good for us to sit in this suspense for a little bit and recognize the good news is on the horizon. But let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, we have got a passage before us that is altogether enlightening. It enlight, it's enlightening not because it per se encourages, not because it is something that brightens our day. It enlightens because it exposes who we once were. It exposes what the world is. And so, Lord, I pray it would humble us. It would humble us and it would lead us to fall on our knees and worship the one who is the king of the universe, to worship the only one who is holy, to worship the only one who is righteous, the only one who is altogether obedient, to worship the only one who is perfect. Lord, as those who are in Christ, I pray that we would stop and take pause and recognize that we are truly recipients of amazing grace. I pray, Lord, for those who who have said in groups, my testimony is not altogether that flashy. I don't have uh, these amazing stories of, of massive life change that when we hear this passage read, every testimony is an amazing testimony of life change. And that we would never put away or push away the great impact of what you've done in a sinner's life. 
So Lord, change us, renew us, make us more like Your Son through the teaching and preaching of Your Word, we ask. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Well, eight years ago, I remember sitting in a sterile doctor's office with my wife, Amanda. Amanda had been feeling uh, not herself for some time, and we had gone to a, uh, a series of doctors and gone through a series of tests, and this was the moment of truth. This was when we were going to get some answers, and I remember feeling cautiously optimistic that it really was nothing. It was around this time Amanda had started really not feeling right, right at the end of January into February. And so this was about six weeks later, uh, mid uh, to latter part of March, eight years ago. And so we're sitting in the office and the doctor comes in and the doctor dispenses with all pleasantries very, very quickly. There wasn't, hi, get to know us, tell me about yourself. Very quickly goes through her introduction of who she is. She sits down at the table or the desk. She pulls up on the monitor some imaging. And she very quickly says, I need to get you to a place. And I need you to follow what I'm about to say. And we need to get to a place very quickly. She goes, I'm going to show you something. And I need you to know this. You've got breast cancer. It's pervasive. And we need to deal with it quickly. We need to deal with it aggressively. Because if we don't, it's going to wreak havoc in your body. Now, if anyone in this room, and I know many have, and I don't want to play the part of a martyr or a victim in any way, but if you've sat in that spot, especially as a young husband and wife, uh, we were raising a young family at the time, uh, that is, that's pretty scary stuff. That, that stops you in your tracks. I remember um, when we were writing and telling all of our friends on Facebook all that had transpired. Our, our family was pre- still pretty little. I remember Luke, who now is in high school, Luke really trying to get his mind wrapped around as a little kid what cancer was. What, what is that? And how is it hurting mom? And what does it mean? And, and all of that. And then telling them that mom, who looked pretty healthy, looked really healthy um, at the moment, was going to all of a sudden, because of decisions mom and dad and the doctors were going to make, was going to start looking really frail. We were going to, she was going to go in healthy one moment, and then she was going to go undergo these surgeries. She was going to be in the hospital uh, for a, a, about a season of seven days, and uh, they would see her sometimes and then not. And and uh, and then she was going to go through a battery of, of surgeries that would take uh, a season of about a year. She'd be on medication for about five years to address this, this cancer. It was hard to wrap your mind around. But there was a statement that was made when the doctor told us that eight years ago that struck me. Because we asked, well, how did it all begin? As we're reeling with the cancer diagnosis, how did it all begin? And I remember this statement. The doctor said, well, cancer is pretty crazy. Because at some point in Amanda's life, unbeknownst to Amanda, one singular cell, unseen by the human eye, microscopic, got this idea that it wanted to seek and destroy everything in Amanda's body. One little cell. And what it did is it said, anybody who wants to join me in this party, let's do this. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, that's a pretty incredible description about cancer. 
And it wasn't too long afterwards when I was talking with somebody about sin and I found myself parroting that same definition about sin. A little part of us, inside of us, wanting to seek and destroy every part of us and it jo- having any part of us join in that process. And so here the Apostle Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That is, before we were in Christ, we were cancer sufferers. There was a part of us that began when we were conceived in sin, a little part of us in sin that ruined the whole lot of us. And so from the beginning... There's been this aspect of who we are called sin that has been becoming pervasive in all aspects of who we are. And as a result of it, it has caused a diagnosis that we are dead. We are dead, the Apostle Paul says. And it has caused an issue that at the end of it all, we are under God's wrath. Now this is a big deal. This is a big deal because the antidote, which we'll get to in a moment, would force Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to have to go to the cross. And so this cancer is such a big deal that it needed to be addressed. It needed to be eradicated from our lives. So how do we deal with it? How do we go from being a cancer sufferer to a cancer survivor? Now, by the way, and I always do this, and I almost did it in this service, Amanda's doing fine. So those that maybe don't know Amanda, Amanda's doing great. Eight years, a cancer survivor, healthy as can be. She was singing up here this morning, praise praise be to God. One time I told a story, and I never gave the, the outcome, and a person came out and said, I couldn't hear another word. Did the person live or die? And I said, yeah, they're doing fine. They were at church this this morning. So Amanda's doing great. She's here and praise be to God. So so what do we do? How do we become a cancer survivor when it comes to sin? How do we become in Christ? Okay? Because this is what Paul is talking about. He says you were this, now you're this. And how we got there was God's work of grace. And the first thing we need to do is we need to receive the correct diagnosis. We need to receive the correct diagnosis. So, I'm going to keep using this metaphor, this illustration of Amanda's journey with cancer. Hopefully it's helpful just to understand our own journey with this cancer of sin. So when Amanda and I are sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor comes in, she brings all the imaging, she brings all the blood work in, and she says, okay, the blood work says it, the biopsy says it, the imaging says it, you've got cancer. Of which Amanda stands up and says, I don't believe you. I don't agree. I feel fine. I don't think I've got cancer. I talked to a couple of my girlfriends. They don't think I've got cancer. Tim doesn't think he's got cancer. And yesterday he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. He doesn't think so. Some of that just blew right by some of you. Okay. I looked on WebMD. It says I don't have cancer. It says I have a brain tumor, but not cancer. Okay? I don't have that. And so I don't believe you. I don't care what your certificates say on the wall. I don't care where you went to college. I don't care how many years you've done this. I don't believe it. 
Well, here's what Dr. God just did in Ephesians chapter 2. Dr. God walked into the room and Dr. God said to the world, you are dead in your trespasses and sin world. Every man, woman, and child, he just diagnosed all of us and he said to every one of us, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. And the world said, I don't believe you. And so the world says, all right, God, I hear you, and I'll go and I'll ask somebody. So they walk away from the doctor's office, Dr. God's office, and they go back and they go to the bar and they, hey, Charlie, I was at Dr. God's office today. Oh, really? What did God have to say? Well, you know, Charlie, God says I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. Oh, really? Yeah, Charlie, can you believe it? Do I look dead? No, you look pretty alive. Thanks, Charlie. Well, what's God talking about? I don't know. You know, God, he comes up with some pretty crazy things. You know, God's probably just trying to make some money. Probably just trying to take you for all that you're worth. Forget God. You're doing just fine. The world, in hearing this diagnosis about their sin and trespasses, said to God, we're not buying it. We're not buying it. Now, listen, God has been diagnosing the world for a long time. Write this passage down, Genesis 2.17. I mean, we're going way back. Genesis 2.17. God says to our ancestors, Adam and Eve, for on the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Now, herein lies the problem. When Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, we think of the apple. We're never told what the fruit actually is. When they eat Adam and Eve, do they keel over? No. They don't die. Physically, that is. And so we have to ask the question, what happens? Now, Paul says in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then three chapters later, for the wage of sin is death. So, they eat of the fruit they weren't supposed to they rebelled against God and something dies well what dies first of all their relationship with God dies that is they no longer have the intimate and close relationship that they once had they were destined to have we were destined to have this amazing relationship with God unhindered relationship with God We were to have this relationship uh, that was um, unbridled and unhindered by sin. That we could walk and talk with God. We could commune with God. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin? They're kicked out of the garden. And they're kicked out of what is that incredible relationship with God. For now, the world that God has created for them fights against them. Human beings, Adam and Eve, fight against each other. Their children even are fighting against one another. And now the relationship with God has got issues. It's got obstacles. It's not as clear and drawn out as it once was. And and so now this relationship isn't what it used to be. But there's a physical ramification to it. Because the Bible says it's appointed for man to die. And that death... It's not just our relationship to God because we see over and over again, man lives, man dies. Man lives, man dies. And so man is appointed to die and then face judgment. And so we see the natural consequence of sin is the progressive dying once we're born. 
So it's funny, we talk about living, really what we're doing right now is we're dying. We're not living, we're dying. As soon as we're born, we're dying. And so what we've got going on is you and I are experiencing right now the consequence of our sin. We're growing older and we're dying. And so we have a loss of a relationship, a death of a relationship with God, and we're dying, and one day we will die a natural death. And so what God has said is this is a result of your trespasses and sin. And what you and I need to do, when Dr. God comes into the office, when he says you're dead in your trespasses and sin, you can do one of two things. If you're in Adam, and in rebellion to God, you can say you don't know what you're talking about, God. And you can get out the door, and you can walk out of the room, and you can say, I don't buy it. Or you can say, if you're in Christ, I believe it, and you're right, and what do I got to do to fix it? What's the remedy? And for those that are in Christ, at some point, someone told you you're dead in Christ. Someone told you you're dead in sin. Someone told you you can't fix it on your own. And you looked into the eyes of the great physician and you said, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. Whatever you tell me the remedy is, I will take it because I am lost and dead without you. That is why, listen to me, church, every gospel presentation must begin with the place that men and women are at in their sin. Without sin, there's no, sa- there's no need for a Savior. You don't need a Savior if there's no sin. That's why I love what Lancey Lee DeMoss says when she says the following, true brokenness is a lifestyle. It's a moment-by-moment lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and life. Not as everyone else thinks it is, but as he knows it to be. Listen, hold that scripture, or the scripture, that, that quote up there. My identity is found in what God says it is. The first identity that I must have as a human being is that God says I'm a sinner. I'm either going to agree with that fact or not. Listen to me. And listen to me very carefully. You will agree with that statement at some point in your existence. Either you will agree with it in this life, or you will agree with it on the day of judgment. The book of Philippians says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In that moment, every person in humanity will bow the knee to the fact that they are sinners and that Jesus is Savior. The problem is at that moment it will be too late. And so now is the time when you hear that you are sick, when you hear that you are dead in sin, that you are to bow the knee, and you are to agree with the prognosis, you are to agree with the the uh, diagnosis of, of the doctor who's sitting across from you. So, Paul says, okay, this is the... This is the truth. You're dead in your sins. Now, right away, the Ephesian believers are sitting there going, okay, well, we got some questions. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office after, after the information was given, and I had lots of questions, okay? What about this? And what about that? And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of things to, to digest in it. 
And so some of the questions I had is, where did it begin? How did it begin? What were the things that might have caused it? What are things that we could do to rectify it? And so Paul recognizes this in dealing with this cancer. And point number two, we need to recognize the different ways this stuff shows up. So anyone who's gotten a cancer diagnosis recognizes and asks the question, the where, when, and how. And that's what Paul does when it comes to sin. So what does he say? We're dead in our trespasses and sin. What does that mean? Well, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, dead in our trespasses and sin. This is that we are in rebellion. That is the blatant disregard to the commands and directions of God. So be careful that we don't reorganize what sin is. It is the blatant and rebellious disregard to the commands and directions of God. So, it's not like we're innocent. We are rebellious. We understood what God said. We understood what God wanted. And we did the opposite. We defied Him. We rebelled against Him. Now notice what Paul says. He said, this is how we used to walk. And this word walk means this is how we lived. This was who we were. This is what we were all about. This was... This is what, in essence, listen, this is what defined us. This is what identified us. We were sinners. Now, this would mean this was, in essence, this was all of who you were. Now, right away, some of you are going, well, wait a minute. I, I don't agree with that. Because that means that if I'm a sinner, I'm guilty of all these sins. And so we start going through, we pick up the catalog of sins. And we start with A, and we're like, okay, I guess I've done that one. I haven't done that one. I haven't done that one. I've not even heard of that one. How can I have sinned that one if I've never even heard of that? I don't even know how to pronounce that one. And we go through, and we're like, I haven't done some of these things. So surely I, I haven't done them. And then, and then we read a scripture... Like the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And then we pick up the catalog again. We're like, oh, Jesus, okay. So Jesus was tempted in every way. Okay, hey, Jesus, Jesus was tempted with that. Ooh, he was tempted with that. Come on, Jesus. You couldn't have been tempted. How could Jesus be tempted? That's not what it means. So get that out of your mind that what it means is because we lived in this lifestyle that it means we thought every sin. We did every sin. We were tempted in every sin. We committed every sin. What it means is we lived in a lifestyle of sin. The idea here is that what's going on, what Paul is articulating, is that we are sinners through and through. That is, we are sinners emotionally, physically, mentally, relationally, spiritually, intellectually. There isn't a part of our being that isn't touched by our sinfulness. That is, there isn't a, a faculty of ours that isn't impacted by our sinfulness. Now, the reason why Paul is bringing this up is that in the church of Ephesus, there was this heresy, there was this bad teaching that was going on called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this belief that there was part of you that was good and part of you that was bad. The part of you that was good was your spirit. The part of you that was bad was uh, the flesh. And let's face it, usually... Your body is what gets you in trouble if you, if you drill down into it. This is how they thought. Usually a part of your body is what does the sinning. 
So you say something bad. It's your mouth. It's your tongue that got you in trouble. In the area of sexuality, there's a part of your body that gets you in trouble. If you steal, it's your hand that gets you in trouble. And so you, you can drill down, if you will, and you could say it's the part of the body, it's the flesh that gets you in trouble. The, the spirit, that's the part that, that thinks about God. That's the part that's uh, thinking spiritual things. That's a pure part. No, what Paul is saying is no. Every part of your being is sinful apart from being in Christ. And so there's not a part of us that's pure and a part that's evil. All of us in sin are evil. This is how we walk. This is how we live. This is how we went on going through our lives. And we had this appetite. We had this magnetism to ones, that is, we wanted to follow in the footsteps of those who were like us. We had role models who we wanted to follow. So we followed the course of this world and we had role models that we wanted to follow. Notice our role models were people in the world and more especially the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We wanted to follow the devil. Jesus said, he's our father. Because just like him, he was the first to rebel because he thought he was way more than he was. He was arrogant. He was haughty. He wanted God's position of authority. And just like him, we did the same thing. And so we follow him. We mimic Him. Instead of obeying our Father, we obey Him. Instead of being allowing God to be our model, we allow the devil to be our model. And so we follow Him. We follow in His footsteps. We do His things. Now, before you think that the devil's making you do these things, notice the devil is only doing, the devil's only helping you do what you're already doing. He's only there doing helping you to do what you're doing the work that is happening in you the sons of disobedience so you you don't need any help being disobedient the devil's just there cheering you on the devil's just there uh helping you uh continue the work that's already started in your heart and so what's happening is we are following our role model the devil and we have joined a fraternity of people who like to sin just like we do. So we find a fraternity of people who like our team. So just like football fans, we find people who like to sin just like us. And the reason why is they don't judge us. They let us sin that way. They allow us to go that way and they, they're okay with it. In fact, they're, they're not just okay with it, but they cheer us on while we do it. They applaud us for it. And we find a brotherhood, a sisterhood in it. That's why the Bible says, be careful who you hang out with because bad company will corrupt good character. There's an environment. Now notice this course of the world, it says that there's this environmental hazard that is there. There's an environmental hazard that can cause this cancer to take place. Growing up and watching 
daytime television, a commercial would come on and the baritone voice would say, uh, have you or a loved one uh, been exposed to asbestos? You may have mesothelioma. And, and anybody that's younger than me has no idea what mesothelioma was. I remember as a young kid, I had no idea what these commercials were all about. And then I finally dawned on me, I did a little research, and it was... It's a pretty heartbreaking situation. There are these construction guys who are tearing out old buildings, and in tearing down these old buildings, they were pulling out material that had asbestos in it, and asbestos caused cancer. And so they were in environments where they did not have protective equipment, and they were put in harm's way, and unbeknownst to them, they were allowing things into their body that were harmful to them, and then these commercials were for law firms that wanted to get you money as a result of the harm that you had been introduced to. The course of this world, what Paul is saying, is he's saying, okay, now be careful, and he'll talk about this later in the text, He says, be careful, you who are in Christ, you're not to walk in the course of this world. You're not to walk in darkness, you are to walk in light. And here's why. Though you're in Christ, you can wreak havoc to your spiritual bodies because of the carcinogens of the world that you unknowingly are allowing yourself to take in and you're like, okay, but what are those things? What What is that? What is the pattern of this world? What is this thing that I'm following, this course, this pattern? Notice what he says. We were following it once. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So I thought long and hard, and I'm like, okay, what in the world is this? What, how, how do I explain this? And another translation said, instead of the passions and desires, the appetites. The appetites. And that helped me. Because the appetites had me start thinking about, okay, we've got these appetites. And the appetites aren't bad. We all have appetites. And the world, those in Christ and those in the world or those in Adam have appetites. The question is, what are we going to do with those appetites? And my mind started to go to a buffet line. And in the buffet line, we have the ability for our appetites to be filled. The world says this. Follow with me because I think this is really helpful for a worldview. The world says, get in the line of the buffet line. By the way, God says the same thing. So both worldviews say, get in line. The buffet is open. The world says, get as much as you can. Have as much as you can. Fill your plate as much as you can because you're God. And so the only law in the buffet line, the only rule in the buffet line is this, according to the world standards. You ready? As long as you don't judge what's on my plate, I won't judge what's on your plate. Does that make sense? And we call that buffet etiquette tolerance.
And so, we've changed societal norms. Societal norms that have been around for millennia, we have changed in our lifetime. We are living in the most significant moments in life because irregardless of of religion, of ethnicities and all that, we have changed things like the issue of marriage and all that. And we've said, it's changed. And here's the reason why. Who am I to judge what's on your plate? And as long as you're not going to judge what's on my plate, I won't judge what's on your plate. Because we're going through the buffet line. Someone's saying, well, I want this and I want this. And I'm like, well, don't, don't, don't judge what's on my plate and I won't judge what's on your plate. So here's what God's Word says. God's Word says that the world is, is God's and He has placed it under our dominion. That everything He has created is for our good and our enjoyment under one circumstance that we are to enjoy it under his lordship and in submission to him and so we take our plates and god says you can have these things but you are to have them in the quantity that i command you to have them in the time frame that i give them in the context of what i give them and know that these rules are not because i hate you but because i love you And so we're sitting there and we're taking, okay, a little of this and a little of that. And what's the world saying to you? What is your problem, dude? It's all you can eat. Get more ribs. Get more steak. Get more this. Get more that. Come on, man. You're missing out. And and, and man, if you leave it there, you, you may not be able to get back to it. Put it on. Heap it up. And so people are looking and saying, why aren't you doing that? And you're saying, because my God says, this is the context of which I'm to enjoy my meal. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is the the quality and the quantity of what I'm supposed to take in this. So notice, the devil isn't stupid. What God creates, the devil counterfeits. Never forget that. What God creates, the devil counterfeits. We're both in a buffet line. The rules are different though. And what we're doing, listen to me church, this is very important and I'll close then with my last point. The problem with being in Christ and not in the world and in rebellion to God is we're sitting there with what we consider to be sparse plates. And we look at our friends and our family and their plates are overflowing. And we're like, wait a minute, who's getting the raw deal here? God, wait a minute, sure looks like they're living their best life now. That is until we read, and it says, Among them we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And here's the kicker. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We need a remedy before the disease is terminal. We need a remedy before the disease is terminal. The remedy for Amanda's cancer was nothing less than barbaric. I remember when the lady, the doctor told us what the surgery was going to be like she says i don't want you to go and look up anything about what's going to happen so what does tim do he goes home and exactly does that one of the headings i think it was the fifth google heading when i typed in the surgery it said most painful top 50 most painful surgeries a person can undergo amanda's was number seven and i click it and i read it and i give a description and and I read it and I'm sitting there and my father growing up my dad was a butcher in a grocery store and and I was like man it's like what I saw my dad do to carcasses of meat that's what was being described it was it was, it was my goodness 
I'm not a crier. And that was like the one time that I cried. Because I'm like, they're going to do this to my wife. Why would they do this? Why would this lady, she seemed like a nice lady. She didn't seem like an even, even-tempered lady. Why would she do this? Then it dawned on me, cancer is an ugly thing. And if you don't deal with cancer, it's, it's, it's going to kill you. Friends, the reason why Jesus died a horrific death on the cross is because sin is a terrible thing. It's a horrific thing. It's a shameful thing. And so what Jesus did was He willfully and willingly said to the Father in heaven, instead of the whole lot of them experiencing the wrath and indignation of God, I will go and make a way. I will go and I will take Tim Bedal's sin off of him and I'll put it on myself. And not just Tim's, but I will do it for anyone who will call upon my name and be saved. And so on that Good Friday, with his arms and legs extended on the cross of Calvary, God put all of his wrath and indignation upon his son. And if you by faith will believe it, just like that Passover lamb, God's indignation and wrath will pass over you and it will go on to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, it says in the book of Hebrews, with the joy set before Him, endured the cross. And so, you've got a decision. Will you believe what the doctor says? You've got a cancer eating away at your body. Will you believe Him? And will you receive the remedy of Christ's shed blood on the cross? Or will you one day stand before an all-consuming fire who is God Himself and experience His wrath and His indignation and experience an eternity away and apart from Him in a place called hell? Or will you, in that moment, experience the immense and supernatural grace of knowing your sins were forgiven and your trespasses covered once and for all? Brothers and sisters, never forget what you were saved from. Never forget how your sin was covered. Never forget the depths of God's amazing love. Remember what is said after these verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. Amen?